Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes fils et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, this week's guest is the host of one of my favorite podcasts. I'm excited to be able to introduce this podcast to those who may not already be familiar with it. Dr. Gary Giraud is the host of the French History Podcast, a terrific podcast which will be of interest to anyone with any kind of interest at all in the fascinating history the country our ancestors came from. I will be speaking with Dr. Giraud about his podcast and about how France looked in the New France era to get some insight into the world these New France colonists left. Gary, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you very much. And yeah, let's go with Gary. I think uh, Dr. Giraud is uh, a bit too formal for such a recording, and I am happy to be here. You know, it's actually funny because... I was going to have someone deliver a guest episode on the Acadians, but then they, this person decided to change their dissertation and wasn't interested in that subject anymore. So it seems like you guys still have a monopoly on the topic. Can you tell us kind of where you're from and how you got an interest in France? I feel like I got interested in France for the best and worst possible reasons simultaneously. First, there is this romanticization about France. It is the most touristed country in the world by far. Pre-COVID, it had 80 million visitors compared to the U.S. with 60 million, which is impressive when you realize that the U.S. is such a larger country, yet more people still go to France. And it's because France, particularly Paris, has this incredible reputation as the absolute height of art, culture, and gastronomy. As much as I love France, I think once one travels to a few more places and begins to realize that, yes, there's these incredible things in France, but there's a lot of really underserved areas around the world, too, with amazing history and culture that maybe the tourists haven't quite flooded into yet. (laughs) Sure. But France has that reputation, and I was definitely into it when I was younger. Uh, There's also my own heritage. On my mother's side, I am mostly Norwegian, but on my father's side, we're Swiss-French, hence the last name Chihou. So when I traveled to France, part of me felt like I was reconnecting with my heritage. I will say that I absolutely loved the parts of France that lived up to my expectations, and I appreciated the parts of France that didn't. Visiting the Louvre, uh, Notre Dame de Paris, Saint-Denis, Saint-Chapelle really were transcendent experiences. Then I had some other experiences that brought me down to earth and made me realize that France isn't a fairy tale kingdom, but <laughs> modern country. Sure. I was sitting in a small theater watching a play with my fellow college classmates. And at one point, two characters start to get romantic and the lights fade and they go off stage. And I remember thinking to myself, well, of course, it's implied that they're going to have sex, but they don't need to do anything more because French people are smart and can pick up on subtle hints. And then a woman in a mask came out and started humping a boot and throwing condoms around the stage. (laughs) 
Oh, jeez. I, I remember sitting in the audience with a cheap beret on and just thinking, I am such a tool. <laughs> yeah, so that was, I think, my my big like coming to reality moment. Aside from that, and maybe some people can relate, one of the most formative periods of my life during my teenage years was the Bush administration. I was 11 when the September 11 terror attacks occurred. I grew up in a moderately conservative household that was largely pro-Bush, and I watched the foreign wars become catastrophes and the economy collapse. It was a very disheartening period and made me quite disillusioned with the U.S. Meanwhile, France seemed to be this sort of anti-U.S., at least in my mind, because under Chirac, it opposed the Iraq war. Even as I was feeling myself detached from the U.S., I began to feel this bond to France because I believed at the time that it was taking this great moral position in opposition to the Bush administration's warmongering. Um, Now that I'm older and a professional historian, I realize that, well, France is hardly one to talk about foreign wars of aggression, (laughs) and it still engages in controversial military activities in the former African colonies to this day. But I was young and I was drawn more to an ideal of France than what turned out to be the real France. That and other episodes made me have a more realistic view of France, uh, even as my view of the U.S. became more nuanced as I matured. But it was a wonderful thing, I think, to have experienced something so idealistic, yet realized that it wasn't realistic. I think that so often we have this idealism for important or historic countries like France, Britain, Italy, Greece, Egypt, Persia, India, China, or the U.S., maybe even Canada, now that Canada has this reputation as this wonderful, beautiful, peace-like place, and many Americans think of it as kind of utopian compared to theirs. And I love Canada. It's not quite utopia. I don't know. Maybe you have a different opinion. (laughs) But those sort of idealizations cloud our view of what these places are. But thankfully, I think that appreciation can exist without idealization. And learning about each of these places' histories has not made me love them any less. Now, how, how did you learn French? Like, where did that come from to have the language to, to begin with? I did not learn when I was younger, which is why I will always st- speak with a uh, Oregonian or Texan accent, the major sure. places I lived, unfortunately. But um, I, that's one thing I get called out on all the time. And I can't help on my podcast, but I can't help but say, okay, I'm trying, people. I'm trying. Yeah, Same. I learned. <laughs> I learned what I, oh, sorry. Yeah, me too. Same thing. I get the same critiques. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there will, uh, those aren't going to go away, but you know, hopefully we're making a few people laugh. Yeah. So I learned when I was in college, I majored in French, took class. Well, I traveled to France, um, as part of college. And then I spent a year working for the French Ministry of Education. There's this program, uh, Tapif, and it's basically for people who uh, want a year off before they figure out what they're going to do with their lives, uh, possibly two years. Um, I only did the one, though. And I taught English to primary school children in southern France in a town, uh, Béziers, which is about 45 minutes by train west of Montpellier. 
And it was there that you really learn how to speak it because there you have to speak it fast. You know, you have to speak it on the same level. Otherwise people get bored with you. Sure. So that is how I came to learn French. My French is, is not perfect, you know, especially because I don't have the best hearing. So uh, I will say that when it comes to listening to French news, you know, when it comes to like TV Saint Monde, I can understand everything completely well. But if you have uh, French rap or French, you know, just kids talking in slang, I'm just completely lost. I'm going to be honest. That's awesome. Now, how did you decide that, you know what, I'm going to make history and teaching the history a career? How did that come about? I've always been a storyteller at heart. Ever since I was a kid, I would write short stories and I started publishing them when I turned 18. And I've loved history because it has fascinating stories. Whether the story was true or fiction, what mattered to me were these remarkable narratives of incredible people or unlikely scenarios. I grew up wanting to be an author, and I have published two novels, though unfortunately nowadays, unless your work is published by a big publishing house, you don't make much money. I knew being a professional writer was a long shot, so I decided to do the easy thing and get a PhD in history (laughs) so I could be a professor. Right. As I was working on my PhD, I thought it would be fun to start podcasting, and I was simultaneously working on the podcast while doing my doctoral program, which sounds like a bad idea and probably is, but I enjoyed it so much that it worked out, and it turned out that I was fairly good at it. Uh, At least my marketing skills are pretty great, I think, because I got this large social media following. Um, I got my PhD in late 2021, and I thought I could get a job without too much difficulty. I graduated from an R1 university. I had a scholarly article in the biggest journal in my field. I presented a national conference, won an award, and had this social media following. This is this is me bragging, but trust, but I'm only doing this because it has the downside and has me <laughs> running into a wall. So, you know, before anyone thinks I'm too big headed. <laughs> so the thing is, is that even though I had all this stuff on my resume and I thought that I could get a job fairly easily, unfortunately, academia is essentially crashing and burning for a number of reasons, which we don't have to get into. Sure. And so because of that, To get a non-adjuncting job teaching at a higher ed setting, you have to compete with scholars who have been on the market for 10 years with half a dozen publications and numerous visiting professorships on their CVs. And it's truly absurd and usually takes over two years to get your foot in the door. I almost got a dream job at Austin, but at the last minute it went to someone else. And so... I didn't get a job for my first year of looking, but I did get an offer from Evergreen Podcasts, which is a company that connects podcasters with advertisers. And since then, I became a partner and things have going things have been going fantastically between my patrons, the ad money, merchandise, and the occasional donation. I've been making enough to live on while doing something that is remarkably rewarding. So deciding to podcast has been quite a ride because this was something I did as a hobby and to make money on the side while I pursued academia, but it's turned out that podcasting is actually a more reliable career project than academia, as crazy as that sounds. 
That's, uh, I mean, you have the dream situation to be able to do a podcast on something you are passionate about and find interesting. That's everybody's goal, I think, who probably gets into this. But no, that's awesome. Very cool. Can you talk about then the decision to start the History of France podcast and how you set aside, like, what is the scope of this podcast going to look like and what is my format going to be? Because there's a lot of really big decisions, right, when you start a podcast. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. I chose to do a podcast about France from three million years ago to present because I feel like to understand the true history of something, you need to know at least a little bit of everything about it. Uh, That was the philosophy of the Annalists, probably the most influential school of historians of all time. They championed total history, the idea that one had to study everything available on a subject in order to present an accurate picture. Um, since then, that idea has fallen out of fashion, in part because the Annalists in the 1950s were medievalists and only had a few hundred sources for any given topic. Whereas for my doctoral dissertation, which was on a fairly specific subject, I ended up with over 10,000 documents to work with. So the Annalists really didn't have to do with uh, modern stuff. So why I chose the topic that I did Uh, Basically, I loved storytelling and I was inspired by Mike Duncan's The History of Rome. I know that The History of Rome is basically the starting point for most history podcasts. It's either The History of Rome or Dan Carlin stuff. And I was more Duncan Duncan than Carlin. And then the British History podcast, which did the whole thing of starting with Doggerland and all this stuff way back. I wanted to do a podcast and I looked around and realized that France was criminally underserved in the history podcasting community. I don't know quite what it is, but there are not a lot of Anglophones who also speak French. There are hundreds of podcasts on the United States, Britain or England. There are podcasts on Rome or Greece because so many Westerners are fascinated by them and because they're part of the Western canon. There's also quite a lot of podcasts on the big Asian countries like India and China, but there really wasn't much on France when I started, which surprised me given just how monumentally important France has been in European and world history. I was in a mindset that I didn't even know if I wanted to do a podcast when I researched and found there were basically no podcasts on French history at the time. And I said, you need to get in on this now. France is such a beloved country. You know, it's so fascinating that if you don't grab this up, somebody else will. And in fact, named the French History Podcast, originally it was going to be the history of France. But there was also, there was already a uh, page. Somebody wanted to do the history of France from beginning to end, but they just never ended up doing that. So I couldn't go with that name. But yeah, so basically I snatched it up before anyone else did. So that was why I picked France. I will just say one thing that makes my podcast different a little bit is that we go back and forth between the main narrative and then guest episodes. So what I do is the history of France from 3 million years ago to present and we go chronologically. It's been quite a long journey. I've been doing this. This is my fifth year into doing this, and we are just now getting into the capation. So it's taken a while, but in order to keep people from being intimidated and thinking that they have to go through this titanic 
amount of stuff. We do guest episodes and I have guest hosts, some scholars from all around the world, usually PhD students, but also I'll interview professors and they do episodes on everything. They do episodes on modern French Algerian hip hop, 19th century funeral preparations, 17th century pirates. It's really incredible just all of the random topics we've got. And it's a nice way for people to just jump in and jump out without having to commit to this enormous corpus, which I'm making. And so that was a really fun thing. And it keeps it fresh because I think that when I look at just how much I have to do, it can be daunting at times, especially because I constantly get people who ask me, when are you going to talk about Napoleon? You know, why is it taking so long to get to Napoleon? And I just can't help but say, okay, there's, there's more to France than Napoleon. And also I'm going to be an old man by the time we get to Napoleon. Don't, (laughs) don't, uh, hold your breath. There's a couple that I think are really neat. Cause you had a, a gentleman from Montreal who talked about the history of the language, oh, which I yeah. thought was a really, really cool bonus. Not the narrative, but the, the extra episode. I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. For those who don't know, so that was uh, Olivier Robichaud, who is a journalist currently, but who has a background in linguistics And he did two episodes on the origins of the French language, and he ended one of those episodes by reading the Treaty of Verdun, and I think he, or it was the the Oaths of Strasbourg, and I think, uh, memory serves, he read it in modern French and then old French to compare it, and so that was was really fun. Yeah, that was really really cool. I need more uh, Canadian stuff, so I'm always trying. But I would like to switch gears a little bit if I could, because I think it would be really interesting to, because we've talked you know, quite a bit about what Quebec looked like early on. We haven't talked a lot about, at all really, about what France, the France that these first settlers left looked like. And I think that would be pretty fascinating, because going around Quebec, you see a couple of years on buildings all the time, right? Or, or references to it in various you know, museums, even public places. You know, The 1759 is everywhere up in Quebec. Obviously, 1608 is something you see everywhere also in Quebec. It's on the back of my hat right now, in fact. So geographically, what did France look like? What were the borders in 1608? So France was not exactly as it was today. The modern day north of France was controlled by the Spanish Habsburgs. The east around modern day Alsace-Lorraine was part of the Holy Roman Empire while the southeast around Nice was part of the Duchy of Savoy. Uh, Likewise, there were a few enclaves in France, including Avignon, which was under the control of the Papal States. In 1608, Louis XIII of France was king, and it was under his son, Louis XIV, that France expanded north and east on the continent. That was in Europe. Meanwhile, France was then beginning to colonize other parts of the world. On the 27th of July, 1605, Port Royal was founded in what became modern-day Nova Scotia. Perhaps I don't have to tell your audience that. (laughs) They're a little familiar, sure. Okay, but maybe more for the generalists. Sure. Of course, you mentioned 1608. Also, the French colonists in the New World were largely fur trappers, and there were few of them. 
Um, France was and still is a large and agriculturally rich country, one which could feed its many people. This is in contrast to England, which could not feed its people as easily and so exported excess people to the colonies so that by the time of the French and Indian War, the English colonists vastly outnumbered the French colonists. Sure. Now, in because we think about the early on in the whole exploration colonization game, we think about you know Spain, Portugal. When exactly did France start to put out the investment into trying to set up colonies and kind of who financed this? Right. So that is a good question. France was interested in exploring and colonizing the New World since Europeans first learned about it. There's- King Francois I hired the Florentine Giovanni de Varanzo, who in 1523 to 1524 sailed along the coast from modern-day Newfoundland all the way south to Florida Then in the 1530s, a name you're probably familiar with, uh, Jacques Cartier, explored modern-day Canada, which he named and claimed for France. However, French imperialism was severely stalled due to the wars of religion, which began in 1562 and lasted until 1598. This 36-year-long conflict occupied French politics However, once France did emerge from the wars, they earnestly launched new expeditions, uh, particularly founding those colonies in Canada, which I mentioned earlier. Later on, various French businessmen understood the potential of colonialism, so it wasn't just the state that was sponsoring it. In 1635, Pierre Bellon Desnambouc, working on behalf of Cardinal Richelieu, set up Saint-Pierre in Martinique, the first French colony in the Caribbean. Uh, This began a series of acquisitions, which included Dominica and Guadeloupe, among others. This was where the real money was to be made, uh, rather than Canada, as great as Canada is today, but it was (laughs) the sugar plantations that brought in enormous revenue. Uh, much more than any products from mainland North America. It was for this reason that French colonization in the Western Hemisphere prioritized the Caribbean, especially by the early 18th century when France took Haiti from Spain. In the Eastern Hemisphere in the 1660s, the French businessmen founded the French East India Company in emulation of the English and Dutch East India Companies, This led to France setting up colonies in India, notably at Pondicherry. At the same time, France began setting up trading posts on the western coast of Africa, though French conquest of much of Africa came later. Gotcha. And could you give us kind of a heads up then? Because one of the things I think that's really neat about your podcast is that you have this narrative, but you took time out. Like pretty early on, maybe talk about the uh, the end of the kind of the Roman era in France. Talk about what the people's lives like were like there. Like what is the day to day existence kind of of the people? What society looks like? And I thought it was really really fascinating. So I am just kind of curious. What is for the day to day? What was France like for the people in the 1608 era? That largely depended on class, toil for workers largely as peasants worked on the land and often owed service on certain days to the landowner if they rented the property. We have to keep in mind that at this time, even though this is 1608, this is 
far past the medieval period that France was still built around the medieval concept of the three estates. It's uh, those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. 5% of the population were the privileged clergy and aristocrats, while 95% were workers, uh, largely peasants, or as we might say, poor agriculturalists. By the early 1600s, there was a rising class of merchants, lawyers, and bureaucrats who were better off than the average farmer. Likewise, skilled craft workers who were part of a guild would earn more money as they applied their trade. During this period, machines became far more widespread. This was pre-industrial without the use of coal power, so these machines were often largely made out of wood like looms or stones as in mills. But water mills, clocks, looms, and other devices were becoming more common, and productivity was steadily rising, producing more wealth. Most people only ever made enough to subsist, though those better off in society were collecting more physical wealth. As far as day-to-day life is concerned, so as I mentioned, for most of the population, it would be regular work including children who from young ages worked alongside their parents. France was a deeply Catholic country, though perhaps one-sixth were Protestants, influenced by John Calvin or Jean Cavon in French. The French Wars of Religion ended in 1598, during which around three million people were killed, roughly one-sixth of the population. As such, tensions were high, but the period of open war was over, Yet some Protestants were not content to stay in France, which led to a failed attempt to set up a colony in Brazil in what is today modern-day Rio de Janeiro in 1555 before the Portuguese expelled them. An interesting fact, which perhaps people aren't aware about, that the originally Rio de Janeiro was a French Huguenot settlement, although it got demolished. So a little fun fact for you. Sure. Um, Otherwise, there was a small minority of Jews who largely lived in cities, sticking to themselves, and who were often targets for attacks by Christians. Most French had little connection to the colonies. France was late in the game compared to Spain and Portugal when it came to colonization. Moreover, it did not push its people to colonize like the English did. By the 1600s, English pro-colonization propaganda was rampant and prisoners and the lowliest were pressed into going to the New World. French leaders were more concerned with European affairs, and so their colonization was minimal under Louis XIII, though it expanded far more under Louis XIV and his successors to include territories in the Caribbean, North America, Africa, and Asia. Because you had mentioned kind of what the, the approach the English took and who got sent or who chose to leave to go to these new colonies. So who were the people that were leaving from France to settle in kind of these areas? The actual settlers were initially poor men who wanted to escape their life of subsistence. They took up positions as professional traders, sailors, fur trappers, and plantation managers. A few women went with their husbands, but colonization was not appealing to most French women. 
French women were comparatively better off than English women, and so there was not the same impetus for French women to leave to a strange, hostile land, especially since the French colonies were often little better than trading posts. The government understood this, and between 1663 to 1673, Louis XIV sponsored a program to send 800 young women to New France. These fidouas, the king's daughters, largely went to Quebec to find husbands. I actually did an episode with Dr. Joanne Dijon, who wrote a book about how in the early 18th century, 200 women were convicted of crimes they never committed, then forcibly sent to Louisiana. But the rich French agriculture kept the country from sending much of its population abroad compared to England, where people overcrowded the cities and either voluntarily left for a better life or systematically were rounded up and sent, which is why there was such a discrepancy between England having these huge settler colonies and France's colonies being largely unpopulated. This has been very, very cool. Those of you who have interest at all in anything related to France absolutely have to check out this podcast. It's a terrific podcast. So where can we send people who have interest in finding your podcast, Gary? Just Google the French History Podcast and you will find us. You can find our main site and you can listen to our episodes. Otherwise, we are very active across social media. We've got Facebook, Twitter, when we thought Twitter was going to implode, we got Mastodon, <laughs> we have Reddit, blah, blah, blah. On Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon, and Instagram, I post four times a day. We start the day off with uh, a meme. We post uh, on this days. We post beautiful pictures of France. We got a ton of stuff going. So even if uh, you don't want to listen to our episodes, which of course you want to listen to our episodes, but even For if sure. you wanted more just daily French content, check us out. So if you type in the French History Podcast, you'll find us. Awesome. Well, this has been way, way fun. We've been talking again with Dr. Gary Giraud, host of the French History Podcast. Appreciate you joining us, Gary. Thank you. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FCL Podcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.